0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, domestic abuse, murder, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Barbara Fugate von Busch shivered in the chilly winter air as she walked up the driveway to her childhood home. Though she knew she should act like a married adult now, the 18-year-old still felt most comfortable there with her mother, stepfather, and younger sisters. Just as she was preparing to let herself in, Barbara spied a note attached to the door. It read, everyone is sick with the flu. She decided to knock instead and was greeted by her 14-year-old sister, Carol Fugate. Instead of being happy to see her, Carol looked terrified She told Barbara to go home to her husband. If she hung around any longer, something bad would happen to their family. Barbara was confused, but could tell from the grave look on Carol's face that her sister wasn't joking around. She hoped it was nothing serious, but since Carol said everything was fine, she reluctantly backed down. She tried to put the strange interaction out of her mind on the drive home, thinking she could come back to visit another time. But she'd already seen her family for the last time. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, 14-year-old Carol Fugate. Though the two were inseparable at first, things turned violent after Carol attempted to break up with Charles. Next week, we'll discuss Charles Starkweather's chilling confessions about what happened next, The resulting trial led to years of controversy as it became all but impossible to determine just who was a victim and who was along for the ride. All that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker play the game and you could win money up to $2 million with more than 88 million in prizes ranging from 50 to $500. Money maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic.
1: They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight
0: that's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Carol Ann Fugate reportedly spent much of her earliest years locked in a closet with her older sister, Barbara. The siblings hid inside whenever their father came home drunk and belligerent. Crammed in the tight space together, all Carol and Barbara could do was hold on to each other as they listened to their mother, Velda, bear the brunt of their father's abuse but they couldn't always close their eyes to the violence. Once, the girls accidentally walked in on their father choking Velda. Finally seeing the abuse firsthand, the sisters leapt into action to defend their mother. Young Barbara grabbed a knife and brandished it in the air while Carol swiped a hammer from nearby. The little girl dropped to her knees and pounded on her father's toes until he finally let go of Velda. Witnessing this kind of abuse would leave a long-lasting mark on the sisters and have a crucial effect on their mental health. Before I dive into Carol Fugate's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Addiction Center, trust issues often arise in the children of alcoholic parents. Their experience with broken promises and parents that consistently fall short, chips away at their ability to trust. The trauma this can cause makes it more likely that the affected child will develop issues with abandonment, substance abuse, intimacy, and other mental health problems later in life. The trauma born from witnessing her father's abuse haunted Carol for a lifetime. But the last time she actually saw her dad, she was only eight years old. It was Christmas, 1951. The girls had just decorated their first ever Christmas tree when, without warning, their father snapped. In a random fit of rage, he knocked the tree over and stormed out of the bedroom. A few moments later, Carol ran to the window and watched her father drag his luggage through the snow. He waited silently for a taxi under a streetlight, not once turning back to look at the house. When the cab arrived, a strange woman got out of the back seat and let him in. Then they drove off together. Carol's father was gone forever, and he hadn't even bothered to say goodbye. The loss made the family's financial situation even more precarious, but Carol's mom was determined to make the best of the situation. She moved the girls to Lincoln, Nebraska, got another job and remarried to a man named Marion Bartlett. The new family lived together in a small but comfortable home. Bartlett gave Velda and her daughters his love, protection, and attention. They felt like they had a second chance at a better life. Barbara and Carol blossomed in their new environment and gradually came out of their shells. In 1956, 17-year-old Barbara went on her first date with a local boy, 18-year-old Charles Starkweather. Charles was a nice boy who made her laugh and soon the two were getting together casually, but Barbara didn't see herself with him long term. Not too long into their relationship, she fell in love with Charles's brother Robert instead. Barbara wanted Robert but worried it would hurt Charles and didn't want to come between him and his brother. As a compromise, she introduced Charles to her younger sister, If he and 13-year-old Carol hit it off, then Barbara would be free to date Robert without any lingering guilt. Carol was willing to go along with the plan. Charles was good-looking in the same vein as the cultural icon of the era, legendary actor James Dean. Some of the resemblance was genetic, but a lot of it was deliberate. Charles intentionally dressed like Dean. He wore a white t-shirt, jeans, and a leather jacket everywhere. He studied the actor's speech patterns and practiced speaking like him, too. He even smoked cigarettes the same way, with the filter just barely dangling off his upper lip. This kind of single-minded obsession is often referred to as celebrity worship. According to a study by Dr. Randy A. Sansoni and others, quote, individuals with high levels of celebrity worship are more likely to have poor mental health as well as clinical symptoms of depression, anxiety, and social dysfunction. For Charles, his James Dean obsession was likely fueled by a poor self-image. While his childhood wasn't as traumatic as Carol's, he did suffer from low self-esteem. In grade school, he was bullied for his bow-legged walk, thick glasses, and speech impediment. It was only when he fought back with the knife that his peers finally backed off. Early on, Charles learned it was either bully or be bullied. Not long after that, he started to dress and act like James Dean. The persona made him feel confident and in control. Even if it was just smoke and mirrors, to 13-year-old Carol, the older boy seemed like a catch. And Charles didn't mind the new arrangement either. He was only 5'5 and said he was happy to go out with Carol because girls his own age were taller than him. With Carol, he didn't feel small. Their first date was fun, and soon the two were inseparable. They went to the movies together, swam at the local saltwater pool, and parked at drive-ins to eat and hang out. Charles also tried to get Carol involved in his hobbies. He loved hunting and one day he took her out to a friend's farm for target practice. When he gave Carol his gun, she was surprised by how heavy it was. With help from Charles, she lifted it with trepidation and shaky hands. She tried to keep cool in front of her boyfriend, but deep down she was terrified. She just wanted the moment to end, so she pointed the barrel in the general direction of some bottles in the distance and fired. The bang made her jump. She immediately decided shooting wasn't for her. Charles wanted her to try again and get used to it, but Carol gave him back the gun. For the rest of the day, she stayed back and just watched as Charles practiced. He was a crack shot and was clearly showing off for his girlfriend. He had almost every target with ease. Though she wasn't interested in guns herself, Carol was impressed with Charles's bad boy behavior. Not only was he an expert shooter, he was also king of the local demolition derby. He often took Carol to watch him play chicken, a game where two vehicles drive directly at one another to see which driver will lose their nerve and swerve away first. Charles always won. He was completely fearless, but his attitude also came with a dark side. Those who knew him said Charles was obsessed with death. When he hunted, he didn't just shoot to kill. He kept firing long after the poor animal was dead. Then he'd just stand and stare at the creature's mangled corpse as if it fascinated him. That kind of cruelty to animals was worrying enough, but Charles's disturbing behavior didn't stop there. He thought about dying constantly, He personified Death and referred to it as a woman. According to him, Death had large breasts and a pointy head, but was missing all her ligaments and neck. He claimed the woman often came to him in dreams or stood outside his window at night. Death also reportedly visited him in the form of a disembodied whistle. Charles said it started as a loud wail, then faded as it grew further and further away. Whenever he heard the sound, he was unable to move his body at all. Because of these supposed visits from death, Charles claimed he wasn't scared of dying. He figured that whatever was on the other side couldn't be worse than his real life. Those kinds of statements made Carol worry. She knew how insecure Charles really was and made it her mission to make him happy. She always made sure to tell him how much she loved him for what he thought were his flaws. While kids at school teased him for his fire hydrant orange hair or bowed legs, Carol insisted she loved every part of him. As time went on, Charles grew closer to Carol, but never stopped hating the rest of the world. He had a hard time making any other connections and slowly withdrew from everyone else. The perfect storm was brewing. Coming up,
1: Charles tries to keep Carol all to himself. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over Each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now,
0: back to the story. By 1957, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and 14-year-old Carol Fugate had been dating for about a year. Charles wanted desperately to woo Carol and sweep her off her feet like a movie character. Wanting to earn money to take her on dates, Charles started working as a garbage collector. But he hated the job and soon got fired for mouthing off. He decided then that he wasn't cut out for a nine-to-five life. Instead of finding another gig, he turned to petty theft. Like in everything else, Charles was fearless and always out to escalate situations. On November 30th, 1957, he tried to purchase a stuffed animal from a local gas station on credit. When the attendant refused, Charles held him at gunpoint. He marched the terrified man into some nearby woods, then shot him in the head without hesitation. All over a stuffed animal. Afterwards, he didn't exactly lay low either. Those who knew him were surprised that he suddenly had so much money to spend. A few even made calls to the local police connecting Charles to the recent murder, but authorities never followed up. That left Charles with plenty of money and a new feeling of invincibility. He used his new cash to shower Carol with gifts and toys, but she'd grown up poor and told him she didn't care about material goods. She only wanted his love. Unfortunately, Charles wasn't sure how to show his love without spending money. So the gifts kept coming and over time, they got bigger. A radio became a record player, which became a golden locket engraved with both of their names. And despite Kirill's protest, Charles expected her full attention and return. The longer they dated, the more controlling he became. According to psychiatrist Dr. Roxanne Dryden Edwards, the difference between healthy and obsessive love is that with the latter, those feelings of infatuation become extreme, expanding to the point of becoming obsessions. That's exactly what happened to Charles. He started to accuse Carol of cheating if he even saw her speaking to another boy. He hounded her about it daily, insisting she spend every second of her free time with him alone. Charles wanted nothing else but to run off with Carol and take her away from her family. He told her stories about how he wanted to become a Wild West Sheriff in a remote part of Texas and live on a ranch with her. At first, Carol found his imagined life funny, but eventually she worried he believed his own delusions. She had always wanted to go to school to become a nurse, and Charles clearly wanted to get in the way of that. She wasn't the only one who noticed. Both Charles and Carol's parents started to worry the couple was spending too much time together. Charles' dad, Guy Starkweather, was particularly adamant. He felt the relationship was unhealthy and that his son was losing focus on his own ambitions. The tension between the two reached a boiling point after Carol accidentally crashed Charles' car. His father had taken out a $150 loan to pay for the vehicle. When Guy learned Carol had wrecked it, he was furious. That day, he literally threw Charles out of a window and told him to never come back. While no one else went quite that far, Carol's parents also disapproved of the relationship. Their patience was tested when Charles started a rumor that Carol was pregnant. Carol promised her mom Velda and stepdad Bartlett that it wasn't true. But even after the gossip was dispelled, Bartlett was enraged. He hated everything about Charles, down to the way he dressed. The last thing he wanted for his stepdaughter was to end up with someone like that boy and Bartlett made sure Carol was all too aware of his feelings. He refused to grant Charles his blessing to marry his stepdaughter on two separate occasions. At first, Carol fought for her boyfriend, but eventually started feeling suffocated by him. Things came to a head on January 19th, 1958. That day, Charles came over to Carol's house in a bad mood. He once again accused her of cheating Carol denied it, but when he wouldn't believe her, she finally snapped and tried to kick him out of the house. Charles just stood there, refusing to move. When he asked Carol if she was sure that's what she wanted, she told him it was, then ran out of the kitchen crying. Charles was devastated, but he wouldn't give Carol up without a fight. Please note, the next details largely come from Charles' testimony, While he initially claimed Carol was also with him for the following events, school records conclusively show she was in classes all day. Two days after Carol kicked Charles out on January 21st, Charles went over to her house to once more ask for her hand in marriage. He let himself in and went to the kitchen where he found Carol's mom, Velda. The two got into a heated argument and she ended up slapping him. Charles slapped her back. That was when Bartlett came rushing in. He tackled Charles to the ground and the two wrestled on the floor. Eventually, Bartlett freed himself and according to Charles, rushed to Carol's bedroom to get a claw hammer. When Charles saw him running away, he pulled out his pistol and shot Bartlett in the head. Velda screamed and charged at the boy with a foot-long butcher knife so Charles shot her too. When she didn't fall right away, he beat her with the butt of his gun. All the commotion woke up Carol's two-year-old half-sister, who started crying hysterically. Charles claimed that he tried to get her to be quiet, but when she wouldn't stop wailing, he bludgeoned her to death with his gun. He then dragged the bodies to the outhouse, drew the drapes shut in the home, and waited for Carol to return. Back at school, Carol had Charles on her mind too. She was having second thoughts about the breakup. She wanted to give Charles's older brother a message for him, but unfortunately, he was absent. When she got home from school, she thought it was strange she didn't see her mom in the kitchen as usual. It was eerily silent in the house until she spotted Charles sitting in her darkened living room. He was aiming a gun directly at her head. Carol didn't flinch, assuming it was just another of his crazy antics. When she asked him where her parents were, he told her his friends had taken her family hostage to rob a bank. It sounded like another one of his tall tales, so she asked him again where her parents were. He stuck to his bizarre story. He added that if Carol didn't do exactly as he asked, he'd order her parents killed. Reality slowly set in. Carol looked back around the house and realized it was just her, Charles, and his loaded gun. She still didn't know what happened to her parents, but she knew she couldn't escape Charles. The two of them hid out in the house like that for several days straight. Friends, family, neighbors, and even the police all stopped by to see Carol and her parents. Charles demanded that Carol get rid of them all, so she told everyone her family was sick with the flu. She even turned away her sister Barbara, who by that point had married Charles' best friend Robert. Carol was literally a prisoner in her own home. At times, Charles left her alone in the house, but always tied her hands and legs so she couldn't get away. Though she did have some small chances where she might have escaped, she was too afraid to ever try. The sad truth was that she wasn't just his hostage physically, but mentally as well. According to Susanna Babel, a licensed family and marriage therapist, Trauma can affect a person's physical and mental health, impeding their ability to think logically. She stated, Trauma has a greater impact on children than on adults because they are mentally, physically, and emotionally more vulnerable. Carol also likely suffered from something known as escape paralysis. This occurs during a traumatic event when the nervous system goes into survival mode. It can cause a hostage to go into a free state, unable to move or act even if it's a matter of life and death. The condition forced Carol to stay in place, but even Charles knew the authorities couldn't be brushed aside forever. Eventually, the police demanded to come in and check out Carol's house themselves. She greeted them while Charles hid in a back room with a gun on his lap. The authorities didn't spend too much time looking around. But before they left, the police asked Carol why she had refused to let her own sister Barbara or her brother-in-law Robert into the house. Carol saw the question as her opportunity to signal for help. She lied and told the officers that she and her brother-in-law had never gotten along. It wasn't true. But Carol hoped that if Robert heard it, he would know something was off. And it worked. As soon as the police told Robert what Carol said, he took matters into his own hands. He raced back to the house with a friend in tow. When the two men got there, the windows and doors were locked. Drapes covered every window which prevented Robert from peering inside. He and his friend crept around to the outhouse and found a scene out of a horror movie. There, by the chicken coop, covered in rags, were the bodies of Carol's mom, her stepfather, and two-year-old sister. Robert immediately called the police, but it was too late. Carol and Charles had already fled the scene. All Charles left behind was a strange and disturbing note. The message was bizarre and shifted erratically from Carol's point of view to his own. It was signed by Chuck S and Carol F, though both names were written in Charles's handwriting. The letter was a strange confession that described how Charles had shot Carol's mom and stepfather. It featured twisted drawings of a knife and bullet and ended with a haphazard apology where Charles claimed he didn't want to kill anyone anymore. The situation terrified police, who worried it would end in a double suicide. The entire precinct was put on high alert. Meanwhile, Charles and Carol drove southeast. Charles knew of a storm cellar near an abandoned school where they could spend the night. But it was freezing, and Charles realized that they were close enough to an old hunting acquaintance, 70-year-old August Meyer. Charles drove up to Meyer's house, but got stuck in the mud on his driveway. He and Carol walked the rest of the way. When Meyer came out to greet them, Carol was relieved to see a familiar face. The elderly man had no idea what was going on, but was happy to help out the children. He even offered to free their car from the mud. But the moment he turned his back, Charles pulled out his shotgun and murdered him. He then beat Myers' dog to death, breaking his shotgun in the process. Carol was more horrified than ever. After Charles killed Meyer, he searched the place for weapons and money while she sat quietly in the kitchen. Meanwhile, the newspapers told a different story. One media outlet, the Lincoln Journal, got their hands on a photo stolen from Carol's house, It was a picture of Charles and Carol sitting in her home with devilish grins on their faces. The photo marked the first time the public was introduced to Carol Fugate. From the beginning, she was framed as a co-conspirator rather than a hostage. That only made what happened next more complicated. Coming up, Charles keeps killing. Now, back to the story. After 14-year-old Carol Fugate broke up with 19-year-old Charles Starkweather, he snapped. He killed both of Carol's parents and her 2-year-old half-sister, then kept Carol hostage in her own home. After a week of lying low, the two of them fled the police and retreated to the home of 70-year-old August Meyer. He was Charles's next victim, but the plan wasn't very well thought out. It wasn't long before someone reported to police that Charles' car had been spotted, stuck in the mud in Myers' driveway. Investigators thought they had Charles cornered. Within minutes, they had the whole property surrounded. They used a bullhorn to warm Charles and Carol to come out with their hands up. There was no answer. After a few more attempts to get Charles and Carol to surrender, the authorities launched tear gas canisters inside the home. The scene looked straight out of an old Bonnie and Clyde film, but once again, there was no response. Police donned gas masks, drew their weapons, and busted into the house. But the only thing they found was Meyer's dead body lying in a pool of his own blood in the outhouse. The rest of the home was ransacked. While the authorities investigated further, one of Meyer's neighbors told an officer he'd heard a car racing past around 10 p.m. the previous night. That morning, he'd found a pile of textbooks dumped on the side of the same road. He believed the teenagers were hiding out in a storm cellar at the nearby abandoned elementary school. He was on the right track. The previous night, without a functioning car, Carol and Charles had started heading to the old cellar. Around the same time, Teenagers Robert Jensen and Carol King happened to be out for a drive. They saw Carol and Charles shivering on the side of the bend. Unaware of who they were helping, they offered to give the strangers a ride. Please note, Carol and Charles give different accounts of the following events. According to Carol, Charles got in the car with Jensen and King and told them to drive. He then put a gun to Jensen's head and told Carol to take the boy's wallet. Carol did what he asked, swiping $4 bills and a picture of King from Jensen. Afterward, Charles ordered Jensen to drive to the elementary school. He told the couple he only wanted their car and that he would leave them in the cellar until someone found them. Once they were stopped, he pulled Jensen out of the vehicle at gunpoint and handed Carol a gun to aim at King. Carol was hesitant to handle the weapon, but Charles threatened her again so she did as he asked. She watched in horror as Charles led Jensen and King down to the freezing cellar. Though she now had a weapon of her own, Carol couldn't bring herself to fight back against Charles. She was afraid for her life and had no confidence in her shooting skills. She also still might have believed her parents were alive. Charles had promised he wouldn't kill them as long as she listened to what he said. It fell to the police to stop the violence. Investigators followed the lead they got at the farm and raced to the old cellar. But once again, they were too late. At the bottom of the stairs, detectives found the bodies of King and Jensen. Jensen was shot six times in the head. King was shot once and was mutilated with a knife. She was found with her clothing off and private areas exposed. Her hand was reaching toward the bunched-up jeans around her ankles. Police were horrified. Because they hadn't found Carol's body, they assumed she was a willing participant in the murder at best, and a cold-blooded killer at worst. That was a story that hit newsstands the next day. Six murders in seven days. The duo behind the killings became infamous. Everyone at Carol's school suddenly identified as her friend, though most of them had never even talked to her before. They broke open her locker and fought over her possessions. The country watched as the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, took up arms. By some accounts, gun stores ran out of ammunition. Even hunting bows were sold out. Police raced against time trying to get a step ahead of Charles and Carol, but the pair defied their expectations. Instead of skipping town, they headed back home to Lincoln next. As they drove away from the storm cellar in Jensen's car, Carol tossed King's school textbooks out of the window. She hoped that the police would find the books and be able to figure out they were headed back to town. To cover up her actions, she told Charles she threw them out because she didn't want to think about school. Charles drove himself and Carol back to her house, But when he saw the police parked out front he kept going and stopped a few blocks away the two of them spent the night in the car less than a mile from the authorities the next morning charles drove them through an upper-class neighborhood and chose a house at random to stop in it was a two-story french colonial home with a long driveway covered by trees the perfect place to park their getaway car and keep out of plain sight Carol waited in the vehicle while Charles found a way inside the house. The property belonged to C. Lauer Ward, one of the city's wealthiest residents. Mr. Ward's wife and the maid, who was deaf, were the only ones home at the time. When Charles knocked, the maid answered. He immediately drew his gun and barked orders at her. She didn't reply. It took a moment, but once he realized she was deaf, Charles wrote down his demands on a piece of paper. His first note told her to sit down and shut up. She did. Charles asked her if there was anyone else in the house. There was. While the maid was at the door, Mrs. Ward came downstairs for her breakfast. She found Charles there waiting for her, holding a gun. Mrs. Ward had heard about the recent murders on TV already, so she didn't argue with Charles. With the situation surprisingly calm, Carol found a couch and took a nap. She woke to the sound of Mr. Ward unlocking the front door hours later. The instant he heard someone coming in, Charles ran to the door and pointed his rifle at Ward. Ward reflexively tried to grab it out of his hand, but Charles fought back, regained control of the gun, and shot Ward dead before he could escape. He then ordered the two other women upstairs. Carol watched as he tied the maid to a bed and stabbed her several times. Mrs. Ward tried to get away, but suffered the same fate as her maid. When it was over, Charles robbed the house, took one of the Ward's car and fled again with Carol. It took until the next day for police to discover what had happened. After one of Mr. Ward's employees called to report him missing, officers rushed to the scene. It was a nightmare, even worse than before. Blood and guts were strewn all over the bed. Charles had also killed the dog by snapping its neck for no apparent reason. Even that wasn't the most disturbing part. Investigators also found the day's Lincoln Star newspaper on the kitchen table. Articles about the murders were plastered across the front page. Detectives noticed that all the pictures had been cut out. Charles took them with him as a creepy memento of his crimes. The police were at the end of their ropes, tired of being too slow to react. They called on adjacent towns to send backup to Lincoln. Even the press helped gather information for detectives. It was all hands on deck. Tips started coming into the station so rapidly, it was hard to decipher what was true and what was wild speculation. After chasing down plenty of false leads, police thought they'd finally caught a break when they flagged down a stocky, red-headed teenager driving through town. They closed in on the vehicle, hoping to finally capture Charles Starkweather. Once they pulled the car over, however, they found Charles's cousin inside. He jumped out of the vehicle with his hands up, screaming. Police were back to square one. Meanwhile... Charles and Carol were already on their way to their next destination. Knowing his red hair would give him away, Charles used black shoe polish that he stole from the ward residence as a disguise. It was finally time to end the rampage. Charles believed that if he and Carol could make it to Washington state, the two of them could start a new life together. Carol knew better. The worst was yet to come. thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate's story. We'll follow them as the killing spree continues, as well as discuss the controversial trial that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parkcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Zena Cresson, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.
1: I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Podcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.